the National Archives podcast series, The Special Operations Executive, presented by Neil Cobbett. Good afternoon, everybody. Nice to see a good turnout today. I'd just like to start off by saying I've worked with the SOE records for about 10 years now, and over the years there have been some fairly consistent themes in terms of questions that I've had to answer. One is whether or how effective SOE was in support of the French resistance, especially around the D-Day period. The second is a particular incident just which took place just after D-Day in the Vecor Plateau in the southeast of France, and there's a certain amount of controversy over that. And I'm just trying to tie some of that in to show how well SOE could perform at the time and what went wrong in one particular instance. Anyway, I'll push on. As everybody will be aware, D-Day was one of the biggest days in history. Some people will say the biggest day in history. It was the opening of the Allied liberation of Western Europe. It was a project that was going to involve millions of men with vast amounts of equipment and ordnance. The strategic objectives were fairly simple. The first was to assault the landing beaches and open up a beachhead so that the rest of the troops and equipment could be brought in. Then to break out of the defensive encirclement and start moving inland. Politically, this is on the geopolitical front, was designed to demonstrate to our Soviet allies that the West was doing its bit in Northwest Europe and to signal to the peoples of occupied Europe as well as to the regime of the Third Reich that the liberation of occupied Western Europe had opened. And everybody probably has seen the film, so I'm not going to talk about it. Just to say that in retrospect it all looks perhaps a bit easy and a bit of a foregone conclusion. This is um, a map from a book by Charles Messenger, the D-Day Atlas. If you have a look at this, you'll see some orange areas along the coast, which are the landing beaches with red arrows on them. That's the sort of state of play after the first 24 hours. Just below that, you'll see a dotted red line, which sort of snakes around up to the coast at the western end, which was the the projected objective line for 24 hours after the landings. It was, it was very tough going, even for the British and Canadians on the eastern beaches. And as I say, it wasn't a foregone conclusion. The Germans were very heavily dug in and had vast numbers of men and munitions and artillery along the coastline. So for D-Day to actually be effective, there were some strategic requirements that needed to be met an element of surprise, keeping the Germans guessing where the invasion was going to come and making them think right up to the last moment that they would be attacked in both the north and the south simultaneously. A a lot of planning, a lot of work went into that. There were two plans, Fortitude North and Fortitude South, to deceive the Nazis about where the landing in northwest Europe would come, all sorts of other scams that were designed to confuse them. Planning and logistical support and coordination of effort was absolutely vital because you had the armed services of at least four countries, Britain, Canada, the USA and France involved, with all that was required to make sure that the equipment was delivered to the men on the beaches at the time that it was required. And then some strategic requirements in terms of what was going on in the Germans' hinterland primarily the delay of the German reserves getting to the beachheads. Again, if you've seen the film, there's the famous quote that Rommel is supposed to have made, will either crush them on the beaches or not at all, or words to that effect. The Germans had something like 65 divisions available for service in France. Um, The idea was to keep as many of them pinned down on garrison duties elsewhere or to just slow up their advance until the Allied beachhead was big enough that they would be able to bring in more troops, more supplies, etc. themselves. 
alongside this, causing confusion, disruption, demoralisation by means of propaganda, sabotage, etc. In particular, breaking the communications and supply lines. The Germans didn't have the use of their telephone system in northern France for any of this period. They either had to use messengers or go onto the air and make radio transmissions which can be intercepted and decrypted. And I just want to go on and show how that was actually met. This is one of the records from the SOE headquarters papers and it's basically a page from a document which has got a whole series of items about the, the preparations for the invasion. This is a forecast of immediate enemy reaction. You'll, I'm not sure how much you can actually see the detail here, but you should be able to see that there's a listing on the left-hand page of some of the main reserves that were available to the Germans, particularly their heavy armour divisions. These were divisions of about 15,000 men with a couple of hundred tanks or self-propelled guns, which if they could be brought up could just be used to bombard the troops on the beaches. And that was sort of the, the very last thing that could be allowed to happen. Included in this, you'll, if, if you can see this, if this is big enough, that there's a listing for the second SS Panzer Division, Das Reich, and I'm going to have a look at the passage of Das Reich from southwest of France up to its assembly area in Normandy a bit later. Okay, well fortunately, a few years beforehand, an organisation had been formed at Churchill's orders which would fit the bill for providing the link between the British in London and the French resistance on the ground, which was beginning to form quite soon after the the end of operations in 1940, around about 1941, both the resistance and SOE were sort of in their early stages of getting going. Hugh Dalton was the Minister of Economic Warfare and he presented a paper to the Cabinet suggesting the setting up of an organisation like SOE. Churchill took this up and gave orders just to harass the enemy by any means. The, the whole point of this was that there was no way that anybody could take the Germans on militarily in open confrontation. But the, the basic orders were very clear. Set Europe ablaze. It's you know, a famous phrase, I know, but it may sound a bit hackneyed or a bit bizarre now. But you have to remember Europe had been occupied by one of the most repressive regimes the world's ever seen, and certainly in modern history. Both SOE and the resistance grew up sort of ad hoc in a, in a kind of patchwork way. And this map sort of, in a way, although it's actually looking at the level of armament of SOE-controlled groups with the dark areas in the centre and up somewhere between Brittany and Normandy, the dark areas are well-armed and the southwestern hatched areas are a, a bit less well-armed and it, it carries on down. But I mean, the main idea is that these resistance movements weren't national movements in the sense that we would think of them. Um, where they were national networks, in reality, they would operate in various localities because of the security problems. Both the German Abwehr, um, the intelligence service, and the SD, the security police, were very active and had officers who attempted to basically penetrate, infiltrate SOE and the resistance and, you know, turn people over to the Gestapo. It's just, I will keep coming back to this because it's, it's, it's quite fundamental. You, you can't organise a clandestine group on a, on a vast scale. It just becomes too open and the probability of somebody being able to infiltrate and just take a whole massive chunk of it out is too, is too likely if you do, like, do that sort of thing. So SOE basically was providing the intelligence and the organisational know-how through its agents on the ground, feeding information back to London so that plans could be made for, with, with a broader perspective on what was going on. There was also a news blackout for a lot of the population 
under German occupation in parts of the Third Reich. It was an offence punishable by death to be in possession of a radio because you could tune into the BBC. You could then tell other people what you'd heard. Communications and supply, again, everybody's got the archetypal picture of the secret agent with their radio in a suitcase tapping out Morse code to London and then the, either the Lysander or the Hudson flying agents in or flying overhead and dropping canisters of weapons and supplies. Probably one of the most important things that they did do, though, was provide expertise and training, um, training in unarmed combat, training in basic weapons handling. America is touted as a big gun-owning gun nation, but most of the people who are shot in America are shot by accident because they don't know how to handle weapons. Um, so these people were there to help train the resistance as well as coordinate them and, and help them build up their confidence. Later on, just before D-Day, little three-man teams called Jebras were dropped in to help with the more technical aspects of sabotage, um, use of high explosives and military engagement. And they were there really basically to sort of stiffen up the resistance and make sure that people had... The, the commitment to actually go through with the kind of military action. I, mean, I, I don't think people really needed much encouragement, but there you go. So I'll just say something about the agents. I don't want to go into this in much detail. Mainly they were very young and they came from all walks of life. You had Francis Camus, the leader of the jockey circuit in southeast France, was a conscientious objector. His brother was killed and he was persuaded to join SOE and became one of its most illustrious and important members in France. They were very committed. All of the people who were involved in any of the operations that I'm going to be talking about today had either been parachuted into France, completed missions, come back to London, and then been dropped in again, or come from other theatres of operations. So they knew what they were getting into. It wasn't the sort of first time round for them. They were tough. Most of them had been through, if not a full commando training course, that they would have been through quite intensive physical training courses because physical stamina and perseverance is absolutely key to this work. On one occasion, an SOE courier had to cycle something like a round journey of something like, it's either 300 or 500 kilometres, but I mean, either way, at the end of it, she was exhausted and couldn't do anything except sit down and cry. But... That all needed to be done. The messages had to be got out to people. They were resourceful personalities. Even more important than being tough is the ability to think on your feet if you're a secret agent. One of the people involved in the Vercor, Christine Granville, was captured twice by security agencies of the Third Reich and managed to talk her way out. Later on, when her leader, Francis Kamitz, was captured, she was able to browbeat a group of German officers into allowing allowing them to buy Kamet's release just hours before he was due to be shot. The broad CV requirement was you had to be capable of learning how to use high explosives, weapons, unarmed combat, elements of sabotage, silent killing. On that point, I'll just end by saying they were lethal when required uh, and with their bare hands. One of the French resistors described Nancy Wake, who was a, another key... SOE agent as being one of the most feminine of women he'd ever known except when the fighting started and he said at that point she was more valuable than five men and they went on a mission on one occasion and a German guard stood in their way they weren't sure how to get to the guard and get him out of the way without anybody hearing and she just walked up and broke his neck with her bare hands. Sorry if some of this is a little bit garish but it's a, it's a rather sort of stilted world and reality, very far removed from our own in a lot of ways. The French resistance, after the fall of France in 1940, obviously a lot of people were dissatisfied. The Vichy regime of Marshal Pétain, which collaborated with the Nazis, it was a puppet regime, was very quickly discredited and seen as quite corrupt, and it collaborated in a lot of the more odious practices, including the transportation of Jews to the death camp, the transportation of young men for compulsory slave labour, etc. And from early 1941, you found groups like Liberation, Combat, 
Front Tireur partisan growing up, partly spontaneously, and their initial, their initial activity would be literary. They would talk to each other, they would hand out leaflets, there was nothing military about it. But there was only one instance in 1940 or 41 of anybody shooting a German officer, um, and they were, they were hung or shot immediately. It, it, it takes a lot of work, I would imagine, to build up that kind of network. So they were forced to operate in local or, local or regional networks and based on pre-existing bodies or bodies of opinion in France, combat was largely former French army officers with, with some left-wingers. Combat, I think, uh, sorry, Liberation, which was the Liberation in the southern part of France, largely members of the Socialist Party and the trade unions, Armée Secrète, was largely the sort of goalless organisation, um, and there were others. Front Partisan was the Communist Party's military resistance body. They weren't unified until midway through the war in 1943, and it took a lot of work, a lot of diplomatic wheeler-dealering to bring that all together and find people who, who could, who had the sort of diplomatic skills to do that and who could coordinate activity. Finally, in, in 1944, around the D-Day period, both Special Operations Executive and its American equivalent, <coughs> the Office of Strategic Services, came under the command of General Koenig they, in something that was called the Special Projects Operational Centre. They also co-reported to the British Special Forces Headquarters and there were SOE troops around at this time who I think reported to 21st Army Group and Chafe, probably also Special Forces Headquarters, but they most definitely weren't under the command of the French. This is just a, um, a report which goes through and give, gives some basic <laughs> ideas of or basic analysis of some of the different groups, Frontierer, Liberation and Combat. The Allies had really quite perceptive intelligence on all this and they were prepared to work with anybody who was prepared to work with them, you know, unless obviously they had so, there was some reason not to, i.e. they'd been collaborating. But, but the resistance was very broad. There was quite a heavy input from the left. People of certain views may not have, in France may not have viewed the German occupation as negatively as other members of the population. Obviously, the mainstream of the resistance was the sort of goalless movement who, who identified directly, I think, with the general. And this is, um, this, is an, this is another patchwork of the French resistance with some, some figures of sort of estimates of personnel in the French resistance groups. I mean, some of it is really quite amazing because... In the area in the southeast, you've got figures of something like 36 and 23,000. I mean, I think even later on, SOE would have probably only claimed that the SOE coordinated resistance circuits prob probably had about maybe 20 or 30,000, but considerably less than these figures. But the resistance was a big movement. It, it was a big movement because the the terms of the occupiers defined it as such. There was very, it was just very easy to transgress and, and commit sort of almost unknown some kind of crime a, a, against the Reich. And the punishments were draconian, if not quite savage in some cases. So the task really was to delay the German reinforcements and reserves after the 6th of June and confuse and disrupt and demoralise the Germans and disrupt and break enemy communications. And this is a plan, uh, the railway plan. Basically, what all the kind of railway networks leading up to the, to the northwest were just targets to be cut as many times as possible. And I think in 1944, there were probably two or 3,000 rail cuts. It was phenomenal. Unfortunately, you could blow up a section of track and the, Amer uh, the Germans could replace it very, very quickly. And so they had to keep doing this over and over again. Although I suspect that there were a certain amount of it was 
what you could term quote-unquote practice. The other thing is, if you can imagine a plan of the Jebra teams being superimposed over this, there's very little activity up in the north, uh, in the north around the Normandy area. That area is largely left clear because the Allies know that's where the combat is going to take place and they obviously didn't want third parties getting in the way, as it were, or confusing the situation. When the, when the Jebra teams are dropped in, these sort of three-man sabotage teams, they form a swathe around the, the, the sort of centre of France in that crucial area where the Germans are going to bring up their reserves from the south. There are reserves in the north around the Pas de Calais area, behind Normandy and slightly further west towards Brittany, and those are the immediate reserves, but the more sort of strategic reserves are spaced out well around the country, away from where the actual fighting is going to take place. The means to hand. Um, everybody will have a reasonable idea of the sort of equipment, ordnance, munitions, etc., available to the German army. The, the resistance and SOE have very little of that. They have light arms, uh, pistols or revolvers. The, the sort of standard weapon, the, the Sten gun, a, a light machine gun. There were some rifles. Some resistance groups would have procured bazookas, mortars, maybe heavy machine guns. And later on, more of these were dropped in. But there was really no artillery, anything like that, that could provide support. The, the, the thinking was that the activity would be guerrilla activity, so there wouldn't be any kind of set-piece engagements. You would blow up a railway line, or you would blow up the machinery in a factory and fade away. If you got into an engagement, you would shoot your way out of it and then melt away again, and then regroup, reform, come back again. So there were all these techniques of sabotage, bombing, dismantlement, obstruction, misuse. If you don't turn a piece of equipment off, if you don't lubricate it, if you, if you run it till it overheats, if you don't sharpen cutting edges properly, all, all of this causes wear and tear and ultimately slows things down. Uh, misinformation and deception, any, you know, any kind of lies which would demoralise the enemy or just waste time. It's, it's, it's really, if anybody's had a bad day at work, you do a bit of work and you suddenly realise one of the figures somebody's given you is wrong and you've, you've got to go and do it all over again. It's, if you think of that on a bigger scale, it's quite something. The rail cuts I've spoken about, disruption of telecommunications, again, as I said before, the, the German landline system was out during most of this period and that must have been really, really quite frustrating because... The phone at that point would have been a key way of actually building up a picture of what was actually going on um, across the country and, and knowing where, where to send your forces. Ambush, there was a certain amount of this and there was a certain amount of sniping. Most of the resistance movements in the Second World War avoided actually killing German personnel if they could because the reprisals were horrific. In France, 30,000 civilians were shot or died as a result of reprisals. If they were shot, that was the milder end of the form of reprisal. I'm going to talk a little bit about what happened in the Vecor as an example of wires getting crossed or people having misconceptions about what was possible. But I just first want to say, apart from the standard resistance networks, largely in the towns, you had... The Mackey resistance, it largely starts in the south and the southeast of France and is started by members of FTP, the communist resistance. The Germans in, introduced a compulsory labour scheme, the service travail obligatoire, and um, they could conscript young Frenchmen and, and women too, presumably, to go and work basically as slave labour. And thousands, and, I mean, tens of thousands of people did, and tens of thousands of people, I think, died. I mean, they were just worked to death. So people took to the, took to the hills, as it were. 
the south of France. The, the area in the centre with cross hatching is the Massif area, and further, uh, further to the east, you've got the area coming over to the, towards the Alps, the southern end, towards the southern end of which is Vercors, high ground plateaus where people could hide out and just basically camp and catch what they needed to stay alive from the local population. And I mean, generally in the, in the southern part of France, which is, tends to be more rural and more cut off, pe people were able to salt away a bit extra for themselves instead of ha having to sort of turn over all the produce to the Germans or their agents. And it's partly how comes um, the Vercors became such a cause celeb because it was a key centre for people who were on the dodge from the labour draft, as well as being a, a really excellent hideout place for the, the military men who were up there, who were going down into the surrounding plains and raiding the Germans. The Vercors Plateau is a kind of northeast pointing kind of arrow shape. It's about 30 miles long by about 20 miles wide, and it's bounded on two sides by rivers, and there's a kind of ring road around the base of it. The way that you get into it is, well, you either have to sort of walk up massive cliffs or through a set of passes in the southeast, or by just tiny little roads that often go through tunnels and are ideal places for ambush. And quite early on, two men, Jean Prevost and Pierre Dallot, had this idea that at some point later on, when the liberation of France was coming, they could, they could declare a free French Republic as a symbol and centre of resistance because they, they conceived of the Vercors as a natural fortress. I'll explain why afterwards, why that was actually sort of a bit misguided, really. But in 1944, there'd been quite a lot of discussion about what would happen, and the commander of the Vercors was basically told to bring his, bring his people out and he was told basically that the plan de, de Montagnard, as this plan was called, was going to be put into effect. And I think, he was, I think he was quite aware of some of the drawbacks to this because the other thing about the Vercors is right, right on the edge of it, down on the plain, is, is the local big town, which is Grenoble. And in Grenoble, you had the 157th Reserve Infantry Division and ver ver elements of various other German formations, as well as a fairly major airfield, which the Germans were able to use for military purposes. And I think it was apparent to the military men that they could do a lot better operating as guerrillas and being able to go out into the surrounding countryside and raid for things like petrol or weapons or blow up items in, you know, things like machinery in factories. In one incident, they actually went into Grenoble and, and liberated uh, a company of uh, Senegalese French troops and brought them back to the Vercors. All, all sorts of things were going on and it was actually an ideal base for that because it's, apart from being quite mountainous, it's very heavily forested and you can, just, you can just get completely lost up there and, and, it's, and it's difficult and it would take ages to comb the whole area and, and find people. But you, you basically end up from about the middle of June with a situation where you've got about three or 4,000 basically lightly armed resistors versus a, a full division of the Wehrmacht and SS and Alpine troops who were all deployed quite strategically. The Wehrmacht troops attacked from the northern end, the Alpine troops through the, the passes in the southeast, and later about two or three hundred SS Gliderborne troops spearheaded the, the attack by being dropped in, in gliders right into the centre of the Vercors in one of the towns, and they basically got a base there and the, the French officers had to use up all their, all their sort of reserve troops or whatever to pin them down there. And this went on until about, I think, the second week of July when the Germans were able to <clears throat> bring up more troops with tanks and artillery in support and they were able to 
penetrate the passes in the southeast and some of the little windy roads that I was talking about earlier on, once they basically got in, the French resistance troops had to fall back and about five days too late, the, the commanding officer realised it really come time to tell everybody to disperse because they, they weren't, all that was going to happen is that everybody was going to be killed if, if they didn't. And they did this and the aftermath was um, very bloody and I'm not going to go into it into a lot, in a lot of detail. A lot of the civilians were killed, it was very brutal. People were shot, families were sealed into their homes which were then burnt and this happened in whole villages. It's really one of the most terrible chapters in the war, I think, in, in France. Now, I want to just say a few things, because there, there's a lot of controversy about this. Some of the French say that the British and Americans were to blame for allowing all the resistance to be called out. But they didn't really have any choice, unless they were going to give the game away, that the invasion was only going to take place in the north of France, as I said earlier. The second thing was that they made it absolutely plain to General Koenig that after the first few days it, was, it wasn't realistic to expect people to keep the pressure up on the Germans so Koenig should give an order for everybody to disperse. The, the problem was that these plateau areas like the Vercors, once people had come in and, and mustered there and been armed quite openly, there wasn't anywhere for them to go. There wasn't anywhere outside the plateau that they could melt away to and the numbers of people that were involved meant that there was no way of concealing them all. So it was actually quite vulnerable, although it was apparently very impregnable. There was a lot of radio communication with both London and Algiers by the SOE teams who were there. Francis Camerts and Christine Granville consistently requested further supplies and tried to explain how dire the situation might become. There was another SOE team there which I think also relayed similar messages, perhaps without the same kind of urgency. Camerts and Granville were party to the sending of a message which, which was basically sent by the, the mayor of Vercors, Chavon, uh, which basically denounced the free French leaders in Algiers as cowards and criminals if they wouldn't send troops or heavier weapons, more supplies. The SOE people in France were quite, quite candid about their opinions, let's say. This document, DEFI 21151, has got a whole section which lists communications, reports of activity and requests. As you go through the patterns quite consistent. Everybody is out, everybody is fighting, nobody's got enough men, personnel or guns or ammunition and everybody is sort of screaming at Algiers and London to get more supplies in. Algiers and London are all committed to Operation Overlord and it's quite obvious logistically that that has to be the priority, that everything else is, is basically being orchestrated in support of the main landings. As I say, they had a really difficult job. If you think back to that original map that I showed you in terms of breaking out, it took days and days and days, and then it took about a month and a half to get out of Normandy, and none of it was a foregone conclusion. These, these are reports um, from the Drome part of the Vercors, that Vercors straddled two administrative regions in France, and for some reason, the people who took the messages in London took them down depending on what department of France you were in. And this is similarly situation reports from Isère asking for weaponry for about 24 companies supported by slightly heavier weaponry. Again, it's, it's all really quite desperate. just want to say a few things about what went wrong in Vercors. I mean, the first thing I'll say is under the four, fourth point really the action broke some fundamental rules of guerrilla warfare about not trying to take the enemy on in open confrontation. It, it was what, what happened there was extremely confrontational and the Germans wouldn't brook any kind of interference with their rule let alone people declaring a free French Republic sort of a few miles away from 
the leading town in that sort of part of the German administration. And if, if, if you read accounts of this, and the best one is Michael Pearson's Tears of Glory, which is, I think is quite easily available and you can get it in paperback, it's not expensive. The military men didn't really want their corps to happen because they could see all the potential pitfalls and also assembling a couple of thousand resistors there made it impossible for them to operate quite as easily as they had done before because the Germans sealed the whole area off so it was a lot more difficult to get in and out and carrying on the kind of sabotage and what have you that they had beforehand. As I said before, it was quite, a vul quite vulnerable once the Germans had actually got in because it was easily isolated and really difficult to get out of. There was a possibility, coming on to the last but one point, that the French could have dropped in a parachute brigade. There, were, there was a squadron of transports which were sort of semi-out of commission and there was a parachute brigade which wasn't doing anything. But the problem was, I think everybody's time and effort was already sort of taken up with the jobs that they'd, they'd definitely been given in support of D-Day. And to get the aircraft into active condition and use troops who may have been earmarked for later operations might not have been a very judicious use of resources. With a lot of this, people need to sort of it's where you really need to see the big picture and see where what, what you're doing actually fits in because if, if you don't, think things can go really badly astray and you, you make one mistake and then you make another mistake to try and make up for that rather than just sort of writing it off and the whole effect snowballs. Finally, there were a lot of airdrops. Um, unfortunately, the Germans could actually see these airdrops taking place. So about 10 minutes after the canisters came down, um, you know, the Luftwaffe would be over the, the drop zone, just strafing, trying to, trying to destroy the equipment and obviously um, just keeping, keeping people away from picking it up. Where those airdrops came in, also a lot of the equipment was um, damaged. It was packed by prisoners of war who would deliberately try and sabotage the packing. And when you, when you drop guns, you, you have to disassemble them and grease them. So before they can be used, they've got to be completely degreased and cleaned and then reassembled. And it means that you need to have people who know what they're doing with that. Guns are actually quite delicate equipment. So if something goes slightly out of alignment on the barrel, much more dangerous if you're behind it shooting it than standing in front of it. Finally, the SOE circuits in that part of France probably had about, probably organised about 10,000 resistors. Most of these people were what are known as sedentaires. They weren't armed. They, they were ready to be called out and to be armed and to become active at any point, whether it was for purposes of sabotage or, or military engagement. But the main priority was that the, when the landings came in the south of France, they needed, to, they needed to keep the Germans off and out of the way for the US columns which would be advancing up the route Napoleon. And it really was important. I read something earlier on today by um, a Frenchman just basically commenting on what SOE and the resistance did together during the war and he said well the, t the, the two important things were preventing the German reserves getting up to Normandy quite so quickly and also keeping the route open in the south because the Americans were able to move up towards Grenoble very quickly. It put great pressure on German troops elsewhere to get out unless they, unless they were going to be cut off and the, the, the position by them in, later on in August was quite, quite sort of hazardous for a lot of the German troops in southwest France in particular. And the idea was also to move as quickly up the eastern side of France and link up with the troops who'd come across from Normandy and, and actually sort of coalesce and form a, an even a bigger and broader front against the Germans in the northeast of France. This is a situation report. This is again is a transmission, and it's it's after the Vercors has been overrun. I think you should be able to see that there's um, 
several points down, there's just an item about Captain Tivoli and his men are in one of the forests. It also points out that a lot of the people who were left on the Vercor Plateau don't have the means of life. So some kind of means would have to be organised to get food and supplies and medical equipment into them. This is where I think you get a very good example of how all this planning and preparation actually paid off. I just want to say something about the 2nd SS Panzer Division. Das Reich was involved from quite early on in Operation Barbarossa, the invasion of the, of the Soviet Union. It was one of the spearhead elements. These were heavily armed, highly trained elite troops. The form of warfare was, I think, far more brutal than anything anybody would really want to admit to uh, or certainly to witness. The war on the Eastern Front was something slightly different. Even by the time Das Reich came to France and committed some of the acts that I'm going to talk about, its hands were already covered in blood, with the blood of civilians from the Eastern Front. But it took a bit of a pasting out there, so it was moved back to France to rest and refit. And they, um, they were stationed at a place called Montalban in southwest France, sort of between Toulouse and Perigueux. I don't know whether any of you know sort of French geography very well, but, but in the southwest. And they were one of the key elements that was going to be moved up to act in support of the German troops in Normandy. And they got their orders to move, or they got their orders to come to readiness to move on the 6th of June. It should have taken them about three days to get there, and elements of Das Reich began moving on the 6th of June because the officers anticipated what the orders were going to be. They'd probably already been told when the time comes, if it comes, you're going up to Normandy. And they, they started moving, and it took them a lot longer to get there, and they faced a lot more obstruction than, than you would expect from a very lightly armed, sort of essentially amateur opposition. In the meantime, <clears throat> the SOE circuits and the resistance associated with them well, if, if you read through the list, the wheelwright circuit blew up petrol dumps in, in southwest France, which obstructed some of their initial movements. The Pimento circuit, led by Tony Brooks, looked at the marshalling yards where the tank transporters were for rail transport. They couldn't get in to blow them up, but two French schoolgirls aged 14 and 16 um, volunteered to sabotage the transporters. So they worked out that they could drain the oil from the ball-bearing ball sumps and the suspension and the, the bogies, the bits with the wheels un underneath, and fill them up with carborundum paste so that all these tank transporters would just seize up and be unusable. And, and they did this, and it meant that a whole panzer division, 15,000 men, 1,400 vehicles, 200 armoured fighting vehicles, either tanks, heavy tanks or self-propelled guns, had to travel either by road or cross-country and, and actually taking everybody cross-country wasn't really viable in terms of, sort of more rapid movement. So they took them by road, they had to use up, well they had to use petrol and the other thing was they had to take the tanks on roads and it's not good for the tank tracks, so they had to have their workshops semi-permanently open to keep repairing the tracks. They got a bit further north and the Restler SOE circuit mounted an ambush of one column, which was reasonably successful. It was in a kind of ravine. The only problem was that the, the column they attacked was longer than the ravine, so they, they had to withdraw because they were in danger of being outflanked. All these other SOE circuits basically sniped, harassed or attacked elements of Das Reich and every time they held them up they were, they were able to radio back the position so that the RAF could bomb them. They didn't kill a lot of people, they tried to avoid that and after um, what I'm going to come on to and describe I think they, they kept up the harassment so that Das Reich would be forced to keep on the move and remain assembled on the road as it were 
because if they came off there there would be further problems in terms of reprisals. The other side of the, the, the previous slide may have made it sound as if um, this was um, a bit of a picnic. It wasn't. As I said, Das Reich is an elite SS division with a very bloody history from the Eastern Front. The resistance action might just be half a dozen or a dozen guys going out with shotguns or rifles, well-intentioned, middle-aged amateurs, and these highly experienced German panzer grenadiers would sweep them out of the way with, with little trouble most of the time. There was a very high casualty rate, and the reprisals were draconian. Also, because they'd lost so many troops on the Eastern Front, rather than being an all-German division, it was also largely composed of men from Alsace-Lorraine, who were nominally French, and the veterans wanted to toughen them up, so they engaged in quite gratuitous brutality against the civilians on the way up. There were hangings, and then at Tull, in retaliation for... And there's a controversy over whether this actually happened. It's supposed that um, resistors who may have been part of FTP killed 40 SS men who'd actually surrendered and mutilated the bodies. There's also the question that the SS commander was also supposedly transporting 600 kilos of gold which had just gone missing. There are, there are two little towns, villages, quite close to each other. One's called Orador sur Glen, which they visited, but there's also another village called Orador sur Vert, and Orador's not an uncommon name for, for villages or towns in France. They basically arrived, everybody was assembled in the, in the public square, and the men were taken round, and a search was conducted of all the buildings, at which point virtually all of the men were shot and the rest of the population were locked in the local church, which was burnt. I say it was, um, it's a really hideous record. Nobody, no, nobody, we, we know that this happened in reprisal for the shooting of a German officer. Nobody knows who shot him. It's very unlikely that it was actually an SOE operative. And as I say, most of the resistance were actually quite wary about killing Germans because of the effect on the civilian population. But that is a really um, hideous episode. Also, because, because um, they had orders to suppress the resistance, which is part of the reason why they took such heavy-handed methods against the people of Orador, they set up roadblocks everywhere, and the famous SOE agent, Violette Zabo, and her companions blundered into one of these and couldn't get away and tried to leave their car and make a run for it, and she was captured. However, that's, that's the downside, if you like. However, as I said, that's right, got their orders to move between the 6th and 9th of June. Their forward elements arrived around about the 16th or 17th of June, but the whole division wasn't in its assembly area until the 30th. They required repairs and refitting till the 10th of July. I say, this should have taken three days. It should have been a routine journey by train. And the, the other problems them using fuel supplies and having to repair their tracks. This kind of disruption, and there were points where they would be under continuous sniper fire for about 48 hours, or just held up on the road in a particular place for up to 48 hours, so they could be bombed which just creates a fantastic amount of tension and undermines people's fighting morale, which is pr probably the key thing. You know, if people haven't really got the will to fight and their, their fighting standard declines to the point where they're more or less committing gratuitous atrocities, their um, effectiveness <coughs> of fighting troops is degraded incredibly. In fact, when they arrived, it's said that Das Reich troops expressed relief to only be facing regular troops instead of terrorists. The whole of the resistance and SOE were characterised by the Germans as terrorists. The other thing is I mentioned General Lamading's 600 kilos of gold bullion. It seems that that got lost en route and was captured by a resistance fighter. I, I found that detail on the website and it's not referenced so I'm only mentioning it. But you, you may well be able to find that if you make a Google search yourself.
this is a this is a document basically outlining the fact that it took them virtually a month to get into action in Normandy, whereas it should have taken them about three days to get there and maybe a couple more days to refit. The campaign against Das Reich looks to me to have been fairly successful. The, the effect of a full panzer division with um, something like 130 heavy tanks arriving in Normandy around about the 10th to the 11th, 12th of, of June would have been disastrous. And similar things happened to other, other, other German formations. I've just picked this because I can't describe them all. The campaign, in a lot of places, really followed the model of coordinated guerrilla warfare. Pe people knew that they only had to do their bit in their own area, and once the Germans had passed through, they could just leave it to the next group. They didn't have to, they didn't have to bust a gut trying to stop them, and they, could, they couldn't do it anyway. So they would just, there would just be small-scale attacks or obstruction, an awful lot of roadblocks. They could just fell trees every couple of miles, and the Germans would have to send advance troops along to keep shifting the trees out of the road, at which point you could start sniping at them a bit. And it was quite cruel, because I would imagine that they quite deliberately missed a lot of the time, and it was just to keep people on the hop. But that way, the resistance was able to maximise the disruption. And working with SOE as part of a national network, they were able to overcome the local nature of the resistance groups, and also in a sense, to overcome the disparity of numbers and weaponry. Because if you don't, if you don't think that you're ever going to have to stand and fight and make a major full-scale confrontation, your enemy is wondering where you're going to come at them again from next, as it were, and you keep them guessing about what's going to happen. These are all sh very small, short-term engagements rather than set-piece battles when the enemy tries to engage them. In most cases, the resistance would just sort of melt away. I mean, again, I'm not suggesting that this was all sort of pie in the sky, that it was a picnic. There were lots of instances in this particular campaign where the resistance went out bravely, probably knowing that they wouldn't survive, and, and they didn't in an awful lot of cases. Start rounding up now, because I've realised time's getting on a bit. I um, just want to say something about SOE's achievements in France. There were thousands of rail cuts between June and September 1944 and it just took time and effort. You have to keep reforming work parties to go out and put, put the rails together. You can bend rail, you can blow it up, you can steal it, you know, you can, you can twist it, you can do all sorts of horrible things to it and, and, and it just takes up an infinite amount of time and of course you can't use the railway lines to move troops and munitions around quickly. The top 150 sabotage operations used about £3,000 of HE, which is about the equivalent of a payload of a then mosquito light bomber. And you can, actually, you can actually bomb and damage far more intensively and accurately than you can by dropping thousands of tonnes of bombs from the air. The RAF tried to take out various factories across France and they just couldn't do it because they could destroy the buildings but usually what would happen is the, the machinery and equipment was untouched. If you've got an explosive expert, they can walk into a place and say, right, I'll, I'll put the main charge here and that row of machines is going out. And that's what they did. And these could be machines for creating precision parts, for German fighting vehicles or what have you, weapons. And it would just mean that a whole branch of industry in the German arms industry might just grind to a halt because they weren't getting components. The telecom system was completely down in northern France. Again, I think the, the, the inconvenience is, is just the main thing and we we take it for granted so much nowadays. You know, if we didn't have a phone, we'd probably feel really quite cut off. As I said, in relation to the, the sabotage above, the, the operations were mainly conducted economically and efficiently. You had about three or 400 SOE agents in France. About a quarter of them didn't come back. If you think that bombing um, sabotage will take a small team of maybe three to go in and do the job and then maybe a couple of dozen people to do the sort of backup. If you're trying to bomb and you're using a squadron of 
Lancaster bombers, you're talking, you're, you're talking about dozens and dozens of people, you know, and if, it's, if this is happening night after night, you're talking about hundreds of lives just being put at risk, and the, the RAF, you know, did do an amazing job given what it was asked to do um, and what it faced, but, you know, sometimes these things, as I say, can be done more economically. They, they tried to bomb one railway line in an area run by the wheelwright circuit and they could have had it done far more easily because the leader of the wheelwright circuit, sorry, the wrestler circuit, was a woman called Pearl Witherington and her speciality was blowing up railway lines and they just did hundreds of these jobs. Tens of thousands of German troops were pinned down. I mean, 14 or 15 German divisions were pinned down in the south of France just on garrison duties and because of the sort of national uprising that took place in France, all, all across France there were sort of spontaneous uprisings, and most of them were crushed, but, you know, it, it, it really took its toll on the Germans. And also in southwest and central France, there's this problem that the Germans, I think, must have really had of sort of looking over their shoulder and wondering how fast the Allies could advance when the invasion of the south of France would come and whether they'd get cut off. And the, the garrisons in places like Saint-Nazaire and Brest, I think, actually chose to remain and, and carried on fighting towards the end of the war, I think. This is just a document which says that the level of activity and the effectiveness had been far higher than had been predicted. And it does actually point out that the numbers of people who volunteered for the resistance and, and the, the shortage of supply of weapons actually created a a potentially awkward position. Again, it's, it's quite precise in terms of its understanding of the situation there. I just want to say, recap, I mean, D-Day required a lot of planning and cooperation. The result wasn't a foregone conclusion. The casualties were high as well, and it took, it took a long time to break out of Normandy. Basically, the Allies got stuck at Caen, and it took a long time to get past that. But the SOE operations were successful in obstructing enemy movement. And also the SAS were involved in France and they mobilised a force in Brittany which was able to step in as the Germans began retreating and actually hold Brittany as the advancing American troops passed through. So they, they basically seized control, the Americans passed through and then the resistance became, as it were, effectively the garrison, um, if you like, of, of that part of France. I think the price of failure would have been a disaster in itself in terms of overlord, in terms of the numbers involved uh, and the general shock, but it would have been absolutely a major setback in the Allies' war plans and, and their more long-term aims after the war as well. This is just an appreciation of what, what um, happened in Brittany after... D-Day and it just points out that once the resistance groups had been armed they could be sort of stood down for a couple of weeks to wait actually for the American advance. It, it was actually an American advance in Brittany and they needed to do that because they wouldn't be able to sustain a campaign of action for you know two or three weeks. A lot of what happened I think just depended on people's dedication and sacrifice that there's a price to pay for all these things, which is fairly obvious. I, I think I've shown fairly clearly that the success in Normandy relied at least in part on behind-the-lines activities. It, it's very difficult to say one thing leads to another in these terms. There is a school of thought that says the resistance had a, almost no effect at all. But having read the documents... And, and having read around published works, it seems that the consensus is that this did actually have a lot of effect in terms of restricting German activity and the effectiveness of German activity, just pinning them down. And finally, you know, clearly everyone who was involved in the resistance and the Allied side played their role, whatever their own affiliation or their own sort of political agenda was people did get on with the job in hand. just want to come back to these maps again. If you remember the first map, this is a map showing the positions on the 
7th and the 12th of June. Sort of round about the 12th of June, they they sort of they've basically taken what they what, what they what they thought were going to be the uh, objectives for the first 24 hours or so. It, it so it really you know it really took a long a, a, a long time to get going and and a lot of effort. Just finally, I just want to say these campaigns of infiltration, underground organisation and resistance. I think are also important because although there have been similar things before, they'd only been seen in particular areas, in particular instances. This is the first time that an external body and an interior resistance have been sort of fused together to coordinate activity and cooperate in, in such a systematic way. And after this, I think warfare in the 20th century is never quite the same again. Uh, there's a tendency to use this sort of new gambit of guerrilla warfare, infiltration, sort of low-level activity. Anyway, I hope this has been interesting for you all. I'd like to thank you all for your patience. Sorry I've gone on a little bit longer than I should have. This event was recorded live on the 24th of July, 2008, at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright the National Archives. All rights reserved.